0: Hey, welcome back. It's another episode of Business of Film, episode number 64. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and you are listening to a crafttruck.com podcast. This week we've got showrunner, executive producer, writer, Naren Shankar with us. Naren started his career with Star Trek Next Generation. He was with them for 52 episodes, worked on other shows, including Star Trek Voyager, Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine, went on to Sequest. And now I'm just reading off IMDb because it's kind of ridiculous. He did 32 episodes of The Outer Limits, then went on to showrun NEP NEP. CSI uh, for 182 episodes. After that, uh, he was working on Grimm for a while and uh, for a small stint on Almost Human, and is presently in production on the sci fi series The Expanse. So, this is what I urge our listeners to think about while we're engaged in this conversation together with Naren. It's impossible to go into any one of these shows, which I know I'm a fan of all of them. And I certainly would have loved to have talked about any one of those shows in great detail. But what I got out of this episode, and I would urge you to think about this, because I was thinking about it for a while after I had uh, completed the conversation, was to really think about those things that were of most importance to Naren, the things that were driving him and his, I guess, for lack of a better word, philosophies, but just the way he thinks about making creatively and executing functionally projects. It's really wonderful to have had him on the show. Naren, if you're listening to this, uh, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to, to spend time with us and our audience. And just some of the things that we're going to get into on this episode include uh, things like... Uh, what drives character and plot and how the two relate uh what you know is what it's like being a showrunner uh although that that is kind of a fun question that 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 he answered and just some of the best writing advice that he ever received uh which uh, he shares with us at the end of the show which which may be the golden nugget of the whole thing so uh, again, thank you so much, uh, Naren. Uh, for those for listening, thank you for spending time with us here uh, at Craft Truck. And you can send us any of your comments at Craft Truck on Twitter. You can reach us anytime, coffee at crafttruck.com. We love hearing from you. We enjoy your comments. And if you have, uh, any questions, comments? Wanted to share things with the show, uh, or questions that you have? We would love to to bring them onto the show for you and get them answered here. So, without further ado, Naren Shankar, episode number sixty four. Great. Well, again, listen. Thank you so much for for taking the time to do this. I, I'm excited not only to have this conversation, but also for our audience because. I don't think they fully realize the depths of which you have been involved in this business. And I, it, it, I was looking over your resume, uh, I guess, what was on IMDb before this call, just to refresh my memory and go through some notes and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just Floored with how much stuff you've done in your career, <laughs> like just like like I, I, I so I just want to start this conversation with: Is there anything that like actually raises your your blood pressure anymore? Like, but or have you just seen everything?
1: Um, you know what, I I I'm sort of one of those people who has um, uh, tends to remain calm. I, I had uh, I had good bosses early on in my career, and I learned from them the value of not panicking. And so that was like, that's actually a really good lesson because especially, you know, when you're running shows, it is a, you know, if the boss panics, then everybody panics and it's never a good thing. So it's like you kind of keep yourself kind of chill, even when things are are full-fledged disaster. It's like, that's like, it's like the best thing you can actually do. (laughs) So I try to, I try to panic like quietly in my own room on my own time. It's like, but you know, just keep it, uh, keep that out of the production as much as possible.
0: <laughs> do you actually like? Uh, uh, is that is that a skill that you learned over time? Do you practice yoga or anything like that? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just actually curious uh, because it's one of those things, and I've noticed this with a lot of really good showrunners. And I, it's funny that you say that, but a lot of really good showrunners, at least that I've had the, the pleasure of knowing, they do seem to have that same sort of demeanor. So it, I guess it's just something that you learn from doing it
1: (laughs) the process is somewhat self-selective so it's like it's like when you get to that point you tend to be that way for the most part because the business is largely unforgiving of of you know crazed panic or at least in the long term i mean the people who've been there for a very long period of time you sort of see sort of general tendencies um so i you know what it's it is, the, the, the business in general, it's so tense. There's so much pressure. The time, the time horizons are so short. Everything that you do is just under sort of like, you know, this, this, this intensity level that's so extreme. Either you enjoy it and you sort of like are, are able to roll with it and then you stay working for a long period of time. Or it kind of gets to you and then you don't do it, you know, and then you just kind of get out. Um but I really enjoy it I, I i you know we we get paid to to tell stories for a living and and spend lots of money to put them on screen and make them beautiful and it's like, it 's like it i so enjoy the business and I think that 's why i 've been around for a while i still i still really you know get a, get jazz just going into the office and doing the job so that
0: that 's awesome uh, i and i mean for just for myself and for our audience, just give us a little bit of how you broke in. Because the first, I guess, sign or evidence of, like, you are here in this business is 52 episodes on Star Trek The Next Generation. And, <laughs> and I, I, while I'm assuming anybody who's ever wanted to be in this business would say, hey, that's fantastic. I want to start my career with 52 episodes on Star Trek TNG. I'm assuming something actually happened in, from a career perspective before that.
1: Um, you know, I had a very unusual path into the business. Uh, I, because I was a, um, I, I started at, at Cornell University when I was in college. I, I started as an art student, and I was like a, you know, medieval studies or French literature major. And then, because you know, the employment prospects of that kind of a <clears throat> that kind of major are kind of slim. The fact that I loved science and math, I transferred into the engineering school. And, and I stayed there all the way through my PhD. And as I was writing my dissertation, um, I, I started going back into, into arts courses. I started taking tons of literature courses and history and every, all the things that I loved. And by the time I was finishing up, I decided I didn't want to be an engineer anymore. And so I got out and uh, finished my degree and I got my PhD because that would have made my parents very sad if I had not. And as a, as a good Indian kid, it's like you gotta, you know, you gotta get the degree, and you gotta complete your education. But um, but I was I started college really young. I just turned 16, and um, and so I had a couple of years to burn. And I had a couple of friends who had come out to California um, to just to, to break into the film business. And and uh, Ron Moore and I. Ron Moore did Battlestar Galactica. Um, he, um, he and I were best friends in college and he had come out to L.A. and he said, come on out to L.A. and be a screenwriter. And I was like, all right, sounds good. Seriously? I,
0: so <laughs> this is like on a lark, come out to L.A. and be a screenwriter?
1: Uh, yeah. That's and fantastic. Was about, with that, was about that much level of thought. We had done a lot of creative writing together in college and we were in a literary society together and he had just started breaking into the business. And, and, a, friend of, and a mutual friend of ours, had gotten Ron to come out to L.A. kind of the same way, because Ron was a political science major, and uh, and so he had gone out to L.A. a couple of years uh, ahead. And uh, and so when I got out, he said, come on out, be a writer. And I'm like, yeah, sounds awesome. And I, I just kind of threw some suitcases in my car, and I drove out to L.A. And I slept on his couch for a couple of months, and I wrote a spec um, that got me an internship on Star Trek The Next Generation through the Writers Guild, which Ron got to one of the guys on Star Trek. Um, And that led to... uh, The internship was a great program through the WGA, Um, and uh, that led them to hiring me as a science consultant because of my background, Um, which was an actual position on the show because Gene Roddenberry had wanted to give Next Generation a firmer like a real science foundation in the original series. And it kept me around pitching stories. And, um, and about a year and a half after I came out to LA, they invited me to be on staff. I did, did like a few freelance, uh, episodes and then they invited me to be on staff. And, um, and that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I, I,
0: what's interesting is like, as, as I guess looking at your career objectively now and looking back, uh, it seems as though the quote unquote writing part of your career has kind of moved uh, I, I, maybe this is true or not, but just from what it looks like, it looks like the writing part has kind of moved to the background, and producing and executive producing and show running has moved to the foreground, but without the writing component was was that uh, was screenwriting kind of a, a way in was there a larger ambition have you kind of is, 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 that, is that even a true statement <laughs>
1: Really, a true statement only because you know. Like I, I, think most showrunners do a ton of writing. It's just a question of how much actual, you know, screen credit you get in terms of written by, and and what what normally happens is the higher you move up the ladder in terms of running a show, the less time you actually get to do original writing work, and and that's just I mean that's just sort of the nature of the beast because. Running a show and producing it is a massive amount of work, and that's why you have staff. That's why you have a staff that writes. Um, now you do end up doing a ton of rewriting because, you know, as a job, a showrunner is a it's, it's a very strange combination. But it's a it's like being a creative director and a CEO and a manager and a psychologist and and you know you and there's a massive technical aspect to the job, so it's like it it, it requires you to wear a lot of hats. Simultaneously and, and shift gears really rapidly, and um, you know when I was on when I was on CSI, it's like the first season I was there, I think I wrote like like seven scripts. I mean, like a shitload of stuff. But every year, you know, past the first season I was there, I just wrote less and less and less original material, and that's just the nature of the game. I think it's the same with you know with pretty much everybody. Um, you know, unless you're doing one of these things where you know, it's like True Detective, where you can spend a couple of years writing, you know, all of the shows and then make them. That's, that's very uncommon. Um, even, in the, even in the short order cable world really that we're, you know, that, that is so much of the business right now, um, that's still unusual.
0: So uh, just because obviously, I, I could probably talk about any one of the shows that you worked on at length. For hours, uh, because I I, 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 I not only am I, you know, a, a lover of film and, and television, a lot of the obviously the shows that, that you worked on, and being a little bit of a, of that kind of sciencey nerd as I guess, I guess the whole world is right now. But uh, we could go on for hours about all that stuff. But I do want to parse out, I guess, just some of the things that you've learned or teased from your experiences, having worked on some of these massive shows, uh, so that our audience really does have some really true takeaways. And, and I mean, I'm just sure. going to, I'm going to jump right into just, um, well, I, actually you can pull from, from any of your experiences, but what would you say was the most challenging set to work on in all the shows that you've worked on thus far?
1: Challenging that, wow, that's a tough one because everyone has its own challenges, and and they're and the challenges are actually not the same relative to what point you are at in your career, um, you know. Because, like for example, it, it is a it is a massive undertaking to um, to launch a new show. Absolutely, is it's a different kind of a, a massive undertaking to to guide a massive hit show like CSI. I mean, I came on to CSI at the end of season two, and the show was just blowing up. Um, and and so that's a, that's a different challenge than getting a show off the ground. Um, Star Trek was, you know, my first job in the business, so it was a massive learning experience. Um, the Outer Limits was, because it was anthology, you know, that was like making a, a tiny little movie every week because you had no standing sets you had no cast that you stick around episode to episode you tore your sets down as fast as you built them and you could literally be going from a contemporary show to something set in the distant past to something set in the distant future in a span of you know five weeks um so all of those shows i mean every show has its own set of challenges and you know, when you're in the middle of it, you go, "This is the toughest thing I've ever done." Until you know, you do the next thing, and then that's the toughest thing you've ever done. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you know, I, it, it's, a, it's a tough question to answer. It really is. Do, um, do, you,
0: do you find yourself managing, I guess, the room, the the, the staff room, and and your writing staff, uh, sort of in equal parts to managing the day to day of the show? I mean, how do you how do you divide your your time uh, just from a practical perspective, uh, I've, I've, uh, and and just by, by example, there's this one guy in the business uh, who I I also really, really respect. And he says, you know what, going to set is like watching paint dry. I show up in the morning, make sure they get their first shot off, come back right before lunch. And then I go back at the end of the day. And that's the way he manages and divides his time. But uh, (laughs) from, uh, from, from your perspective, I'd love to hear your philosophy on running a show.
1: Um, Okay. Another big question. Um, look, you know what, it it is a, a, again, it's like personality types are going to come into it. Like, uh, you know, Stephen Bosco would like, he would never send writers to set. He just thought it was a pointless waste of time. Um, and, and he just didn't feel like that was the place where they were useful. Uh, I kind of grew up, um, mostly on shows, especially when I started really getting involved in production um, about being on set, and I actually really love it. I mean, it's, you know, I've directed before. I, I love the making of it, and it's a very different part of the process than the writing of it. But um, what you see in a lot of different people is, it's like sort of their natural tendencies. Some, you know, I mean, we have obviously spoken to a lot of writers, um, you know, over the years. Not everyone is suited to, to be what, to, to work well on a set. It's like, you know, and, and it, so it, it comes out, it's like, I love the filmmaking process, so I still try to spend some time on stuff, but the reality of the business is, um, as a showrunner, if you really are running the show from the creative standpoint, you need to spend time in the room, you need to spend time crafting the stories, and that is where so, so much work gets done, and it's incredibly enjoyable. Um, it's one of the things I absolutely love the most is actually breaking stories and figuring out figuring out how to tell something and figuring out imaginative ways to visualize things. It's like, it, it, and if you have the right group of people, it, it is probably the most fun you can possibly have because you're sitting in a room with a bunch of really smart people figuring out a way to tell a, a narrative that can mean so many things or, or imply so many, um, you just just tell whatever is in your head or whatever the show is about. It's like to convey that to somebody, and make them feel something, that's the fun of it all. I mean, that's, you know, why well, don't you go to a movie? Why well, don't you watch a great television show? Um, and with the right bunch of people on a staff, there's nothing more fun. Just banging ideas off of people and, and, uh, and, and telling stories. It's, it's really, it's a fantastic thing. And I was lucky to have um, really good experiences early in my career. Uh, and and that has sort of set the tone um, for how I run a room uh, because for me, it's like the best rooms are rooms where everybody feels like they can make a contribution, where you're not standing on hierarchy, where, where really it truly is the way Mike Nichols would say it's best idea wins. Um, and that is a – that's how – if you want to look at sort of a, a, a nutshell philosophy of how I how I run a room, that's it.
0: Best idea wins. When you start the, the process of, I guess, breaking down stories or seasons or arcs mm. and arcs within arcs and all that character stuff, where do you and where do you encourage your room to start? I mean, you, I mean obviously, you walk into that room at the start of a season and whether it's season one or season eight, you're, you're looking at that whiteboard. Mm-hmm. Where do you kind of start the process with the uh, with the people that you work with
1: you know the the job of, of the share and the boss in general is to give a framework because you can end up look if you get half a dozen smart people in a room um with the same piece of material they won't none of them will tell it the same way uh and and that's you know
0: yeah the the call, drop the call dropped there. The call there for a second. Oh, okay. Sorry, just, just just pick it up. We're all good. Uh,
1: we're all good. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, what we're doing with the expanse, for example, is um, we're adapting a novel. So we have a really good plot framework. Um, we also have to the two writers of the book in the room with us, which is an amazing help. But um, but you know what we do, what we did um, coming into season one is we crafted. Uh, pretty, a pretty solid framework in very broad strokes of what the season would be like, sort of knew where we were going to end relative to where, you know, uh, to a, uh, a point in the book. Um We had a, a sense of how to, how the episodes would break down, you know, one through 10. Um And so within that, there was a tremendous amount of, of room work and actual, you know, story work, but what was really good about this process was we gave them a really good sandbox to play in, in the room. Um, and a strong foundation. I'm a big believer in that, especially for tightly arched, um, you know, strongly serialized drama, is that you got to really spend the time to make the plan good. Um, and if the, if the plan's good and the foundation is good, the house is going to be really strong. Um, and, you know, things will change along the way. We, we discovered things along the way. We explored things along the way. We, we found stuff that we liked and really, you know, that we liked and we really started to play into it more. Um you gotta be open to those opportunities. Um, but, you know, I'd say, you know, I'd say good, you know, 90% of what we came up with, um, in our initial, uh, sessions, play out the season, survived. Which means it was a good
0: plan, right? And, and this is for the expanse.
1: Uh yes, this is the expanse. Mm-hmm.
0: Which, uh, so when does it just just because we're we're talking about that right now, when when does that come out for our audience? I don't know whether it's at, it's it's still posting, right? So
1: we are still in post on the expanse, and we haven't actually received an official air date. Sci Fi just likes to say twenty fifteen. <laughs> 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 so sometime in twenty fifteen, is going
0: to be Fair enough. Air. Well, I. I, uh, I I I would hold this podcast until then, but that's just not fair. So (laughs) what what we'll do is we'll update the podcast right before. Um, No. Um, Okay. So uh, when you say build a, you know, a strong foundation, what does that actually mean practically speaking? Do you start from characters, from plot? Does it just like from anywhere? I I imagine that you kind of come into these, these rooms and, 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 you kind of have some kind of guiding light for what the seasons going to be, and then just kind of start jigsaw, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, jigsaw piecing the thing together. Um, but I, I don't know whether there's anything more concrete than the the magical fairy dust that that you kind of sprinkle over the the, the thing.
1: <laughs> but you know what? It is a you get. Uh, uh, an incredible array of responses to to that particular question. And, you know, some people say, you've got to start with character. Some people say, you got to start with plot. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm kind of of the mind that you can't really, um, you can't completely extricate those two things. It, it's like nature and nurture. It, it's, you know, character drives action, action reveals character. It's like it is a it 's this beautiful virtuous feedback loop, and I think great stories always do both of those things it 's like one doesn 't really exist you know in isolation to the other um and it's very case specific it 's like you know i can 't imagine let 's say Jason cadence when he 's doing parenthood like that he 's coming from plot i i you know I, from everything i 've heard it's like that is like the you know the fountainhead for those stories come purely out of character and emotion. Here we have, you know, like on the expanse, we have Leviathan Wakes, which is, which is a very plot heavy and plot centric kind of a novel. It is, you know, we call it an epic space drama and it really is. Um, so what that gives us are really good signposts um, and a structure that allows us to explore character within. Um, so, Again, I've worked on shows that go to sort of either end of the spectrum, something that's right in the middle. but my, my general philosophy is, is to not be dogmatic. It's like I, I tend to find that um, uh, you, you bring you bring different tools and a different focus depending on the material. and then you just have to you, know, you have to kind of listen to material so it'll speak to you some you know if you, if you if you listen carefully enough and as you go through it, you'll understand how to deal with it, I think, in the best way. At least that's how I try to do it.
0: So on the topic of story, um, and this is absolutely a personal question, which I'm just... This is my only one, I promise you. I'm only going to ask one very <laughs> okay. specific, pointed, personal story question.
1: So <laughs>
0: Almost Human, I really enjoyed that show. Um, I, I'm. I'm. I, it, it was cancelled, right? I'm assuming there are no more that those coming down the pipe.
1: No, there are no more.
0: Okay, so what was beyond the wall? I mean, there was one episode there where the, 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 the doctor got zipped up, right? He, yeah. he climbed through the wall to the other side and you, were, and you were trying to tease something for what was beyond the wall.
1: Um, well, I, I left that show fairly early on um, in the run of it. Um, that, was a, that was a rough experience almost to me. It was, and it was problematic because what, what Joel wanted who created this show, he wanted to make a particular show. The studio wanted to make a different show. The network wanted to make yet another different show. And it was very tough creatively in that respect. Um, so I think that, you know, Joel and I got along really well. Um, it's just, it's just that, well, at the end of the day, that particular one didn't quite, didn't quite work. Um, it worked occasionally, I think over the run of the 13 episodes. Um, but it's a you know that one that was a that was a that was a tough one. I have to say. <laughs>
0: well, you, you bring up sort of an interesting point here. Now, I don't know whether are and now I I genuinely don't know the answer to this. Are you the guy that comes up with the original ideals, that goes in to pitch the studios and tries to sell the you know the, the pilot, or are you the guy that you know they call to basically show run shows that have already been picked up, or did a combination of Uh, both?
1: The the answer to both questions is yes. Okay. Like, you you do both, you do all of those things.
0: So, when you're, uh, I mean, just peel away a little bit of the behind the curtains here for just a second, because this is actually stuff that that certainly, you know, our our audience that we don't get, you know, most people, in fact, they just don't have access to, you know, how do you sell a show when you go into the room and you're sitting down in front of those executives or to, you know, the multitude of studios that you're going to pitch to all in the same day. Just can you walk us through just kind of that, that process of selling a show? I mean, after all, the, we are the, you know, the business side of things a little bit here, and I want I wanted yeah. to just dive into that, that mystery well, box. I mean,
1: you know, there are people who are incredible pitch, uh, pitchmen, uh, pitchers, or pitchers, I guess that's what you're going on, people who, who are amazing at pitching a show. Um, it's like I, I suspect in a different era those people would have been amazing salesmen um, because it is, a, it is a selling job. I mean, you have to, in, in what typically is like a 20- or 30-minute meeting, vividly draw a world, create characters, have executives sort of like sitting on the edge of your seat as you sketch out really the broad strokes of a pilot and imply theme and, and, and make it funny and make yourself look like you're thrilled to like be in the room and as excited as, a, as all get out to actually pitch the show. I mean, you have to do all of these things. Some people are so natural at it and incredible. It just makes you like, you know, jealous as hell that you just can't. We don't have that gift of gab. Um, Other people are terrible pitchers and phenomenally good writers who 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 dread the process. You know, I think I've seen actors who like who become writers who are amazing at it because they're actors that can go in there and they can just kind of get it up off its feet and get everybody talking to them because it's just that, you know, charisma is a natural thing. And um, it's a very difficult part of the process uh, because you don't have a lot of time you You can never truly um, you can never truly express all of the subtlety and nuance that may be in a concept in that format it's it's next to impossible um, and I think one of the things that you know one of the reasons that people are constantly looking for you know underlying novels graphic novels intellectual property of some kind is that is is that, you know, it gives them that kind of foundation where they understand the depth of it, but you don't have to go in and pitch that. You know, you pitch a take on it. That makes it a little bit easier. Um, But it is a a tough part of the process, and not everybody is good at it. Uh, So, you know, it's like, um, yeah, uh, I I think most writers, my guess would be they dread it. They dread that process. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs>
0: out of curiosity, was there like any particular show that you pitched on that that did uh, or didn't uh, you know make its way through to the uh, I guess the the screen, but that um, you just walked out of there going that was just the best pitch I ever gave.
1: Um, uh, Ron Moore and I actually a few years ago um, we uh, we tried to reboot uh, the the old show, The Wild Wild West. Yeah, um, yeah. It's CBS, and we, we had a phenomenally great pitch for the show. And they loved it, and they bought it right away. And we wrote one of our favorite scripts, I think, that either one of us has ever been involved in. And uh, CBS just wouldn't make it. Um, they just weren't ready to go to like a sort of a sci fi ish Western. Um, this would have been like in, this was like 2010, 2011.
0: They, went, went, um, they still had the heebie-jeebies over Firefly or something?
1: I don't know. That wasn't their show. Fox well, no,
0: I know, there. I know. I'm just saying like just in, like that was still in the zeitgeist. We don't want to do a sci-fi western.
1: No, I think, I mean, and we were ahead of it. We were really ahead of the curve on that one. Uh, I think it would have been at exactly the right time because it was a sort of a classic kind of a four-quadrant in the in the future parlance kind of a show. You know, CBS is a, is a is a challenging place to develop because when when CSI and Survivor came on the air in, in you know, 2000, 2001, um, the, the CBS is the place where, like, you know, you went to die creatively. It was like a really old audience. It was really, all the shows were kind of dull. And then suddenly these two, like, out of the blue, you know, this crazy reality show in this weird, you know, guy eating bugs and smashing head, you know, golf clubs in the head filled with blood, you know, this high style, you know, kinetic kind of a show. These things suddenly showed up on their on their air, and people were like, "What the hell is this?" And what happened was, over the next ten, twelve years, they commoditized that concept. It's like there was a time when you know, when CSI, CSI New York, CSI Miami, the Criminal Minds, the NCIS, there were times if you just tuned in uh, to CBS, you wouldn't be able to tell what show you were watching if you just if you didn't look at it. If you just listened to it, every show sounded the same. They had the same sort of look. They had the same sort of, you know, the operations room, and then the lab. So they were, I think, at the time we pitched the Wild, Wild West, they were in that mode where they had been very successful making a particular kind of show for a very long period of time, and they just weren't ready to make that kind of jump. Now maybe if this was, you know, maybe they're clearly taking, you know, they're clearly taking some jumps now. I mean, they're doing Supergirl, they're doing, you know, they're they're trying other stuff. Um, But they're they're kind of a conservative place, and you know, it'll be interesting to see in the next few years how that audience holds up. and and sort of the direction they choose to go, because I think you know from a creative standpoint in the business, you know, people aren't looking in that kind of show to sort of lead the way uh, anymore.
0: Now, when it comes to just kind of that 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 business studio interaction side of things, how hands-on are the production executives at the studio level? working with you on the I guess the the budget and execution side of it so being able to deliver obviously they want the best creatively but the budget has to you know has certain uh, constraints Uh, how challenging is it to to keep this show going both creatively and budgetarily and make that those two sides kind of work together because these these are huge shows right these are not small shows these are Huge shows. No.
1: Yeah. Um, it's very challenging, you know. And and when you're a showrunner, you know, you're a you're responsible for that bottom line. I mean, it's like you're you sign the budget. You know, your name is there, and, and you agree to spend this kind of money. And so, it is. You know, it, that's a real concern. You got you you are you have to know. You know when you want to stretch and when you want to pull back. And if you're going to spend more here, you've got to have a plan to spend less there. You know, you, you, and you, it, this is something that guides um, that guides you and, and and can dictate to some extent the kinds of stories, maybe not the kinds of stories, but the way you tell the stories. Um, but you know, that that's that's something you have to plan for. And, and the people who are the best at running shows are very aware of it because. The truth of the matter is, is everybody wants to make everything as big as possible. And and great directors want to push you to the absolute limit to get every single thing that they want, make every shot beautiful, and that's that's what they do. Those are the people you want to work with. But the reality is, is you have to be able to, to be the person to say, we need this here or we don't need this here or we're not going to do it here so we can do it sometime later. You need to know when to save. You need to know when to spend. You need to know you know, what's going to be important or or how you want to spend your money because it's not infinite. Um, And it's it's part of the process. Uh, It, it again, makes it, you know, it makes the job pretty unique. Um, It's rare to have, you know, I think in most businesses, the the level of creative business managerial, you know, roles all wrapped into the same person. Um, That's part of what makes it fun and what makes it unique.
0: Yeah, they they also don't teach you how to be a showrunner. I mean, this is something that I mean, there's no. Oh, actually, there are like showrunning schools, I guess. Uh, there, but it's like there's like one. It's for the and it's the ultra exclusive club. You can't get into it unless you've been invited to it, right? <laughs> so the
1: um, yeah, the Writers Guild, in I think 2003 or four, maybe for the first time in its history, created what was called a showrunner training program, in which um, you know writers who were at that stage where they were actually developing and at the, a point in their career where they could be considered showrunners, um, it, it was a program to, to at least give them a sense of what that job entails. Um, it's a very hard thing to teach because no matter, I mean, even if you have, you know, even if you go through the program, and it's a very good program, by the way. I, I You know, I've I, you know, been a panelist there and, and helped with some of their sessions and, you know, like just as a speaker, et cetera, you know, over the years, um, what it cannot prepare you for is, is the time pressure and, and the pure intensity of the stress. It's like because, you know, you will have hundreds of questions and decisions to make on any given day all the time. And it's just either, I think you just have, if you have the personality for it, it's great. If you don't have the personality for it, it's tough. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons you often see these days a lot of people partner up. It's like you know you have a like a writer who just wants to be in the room, and he partners up with somebody who is just more nuts and bolts production or a non-writing producer. Those are common partnerships. You see them quite often. Um, so you know it's a uh, it's just partially because the job the the, the the you know the portfolio is so broad for what the job is. Um, it's just not suited to everybody.
0: Yeah, it kind of goes back to what you're saying at the very beginning of the conversation about just uh, yourself being having that kind of temperament that could handle the demands of this job, but not everybody has that kind of temperament or is designed to work that way. Um, yeah,
1: absolutely, it's you know I, I I sort of have I kind of have a weird skill set that's kind of uncommon because again like because I was an engineer I can look at a plan and, and understand what I'm seeing. And a set plan and that's not something that most people, you know, I mean that's just an example, but that's just not something that most writers would ever have in their, you know, in their experience. It's like I can look at a plan and I go, This needs to be wider, because if we have to get a steady cancer here or a dollar, I'm like, Oh, So like you can read dimensions, you can you can say that this needs to be smaller or this needs to be bigger, or oh, why is is there a header there on the ceiling here? So but that's just something, you know, you know, I just I just have that that odd background that I get to apply to, to a job in a way that I never thought I would ever possibly
0: do. So, you know. So, uh, uh, on that that topic of scope and scale, uh, one of the things that I've noticed, at least in the, some of the sci-fi series, is that they've been working on of late, is they're spending a huge amount of money on sets. And now with The Expanse, uh, I, I've, I've only heard anecdotally how, you know, how large... Kind of the the, the sets and construction that that show is, and some of the other, and having seen some of the other stuff that sci-fi is working on, what do you think is driving that that desire to just build a bigger universe? But but just that scope is massive now.
1: Uh, are, you, are you talking about just about The Expanse or just in general? Like, you know, well, I mean,
0: obviously there's Ascension, right, where you look at that set and you uh-huh. go, holy crap, like that thing is just, yeah. it's just massive. Now, I don't, obviously, I've got no frame of reference for The Expanse, but uh, because I have, we sure. haven't seen the show yet, but I can only assume it's got that same kind of scale and design and then, and so on and so forth.
1: Uh-huh.
0: But that that has to be driven from, from something, whether it's business or it's creative, because you can't just go in and build a set like that. It costs like, but that must cost millions of dollars just on that set alone, right? So that you're, there's some either creative drive or business drive to, to have bigger, more audacious ideas or bigger scope and scale and to believe that that's going to translate to audience.
1: Sure. I mean, look, you know, with, uh, Ascension's an interesting example because it was originally pitched as a, as a limited series. And because of the nature of what the show was, it, it allows you to say, okay, we're going to kind of be on this ship, for the you know, this quote-unquote ship, for the run of the show. So it allows you to say, okay, why don't we put a shitload of money into making that set amazing? Because you understand from a story standpoint that you're going to be kind of in one place. Um, And that's, in some ways, the traditional television model. It's like a traditional television for for the last 50 years television model is you have a standing set that you're in um, and you're there every single episode. And to a certain extent, most shows have have been of that nature where you you have a physical you know, a physical place that you come back to week after week after week. Um, and, you know, some new stuff, like CSI, for example, we shot the show in, in basically nine days. Um, and it was designed to be four or five days in the laboratory and in our police station and on the standing sets that we had on our stages, and then out and about um, in new sets that we would build episode to episode. Um, so... You know, Ascension, they could do the entire show basically in that set that they built. Um, with science fiction, what seems to be happening is, especially future stuff, which is really, really tough to do, um, because all of the environments are, you know, are places that don't exist, it makes a lot of sense to create them. So that's kind of what's driving it. And then I think that in general... The production design bar has been raised just naturally over the years, so people expect more. Um, And, you know, we're still not at that point where, you know, virtual environments, you know, uh, virtual sets are quite to the level that they need to be um, to allow you to do an entire show that way. So there's, there's there's a great deal to be gained by having, you know, actual tactile, physical places to actually shoot in. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's coming from a lot of different directions.
0: I I know we're going a little bit over on time. Do you mind if I ask you just, just one last, I guess, parting question just for uh, our listeners? If you were to give uh, those who are listening any of, I guess, your one or two best pieces of advice yeah. that you have received from others over the years, what would those be?
1: Um can you can you narrow the scope a little bit? And in what in what field or in what aspect of things?
0: One okay, fair enough. Uh one uh from the perspective of uh writing and one from the perspective of just say uh nuts and bolts producing.
1: Huh. I think the nuts and bolts producing ones don't panic. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's actually really, really good advice. Um because it is, it is a, it can be a very panic inducing kind of a job. Um, but, you know, uh, staying calm and, 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 um, um, you know, being creative and flexible in terms of problem solving is a really, really good one. Um, and I think on the writing side is, um, I would say this. Have a short memory, and and what I mean by that is, is this is this may sound like it. it okay, this is this is a. I used to do a lot of martial arts when I was in college, and over the years, and I remember the first time we had a we had a lesson from our sensei. Like he came to the, the dojo for the first time, and I was just like a very new student, like a white belt or a yellow belt or whatever it was, and he like kicked our asses. And at the end of the class, he's like, everybody was just like, you know, we were like shaking and trembling from everything. And, and, and the master said, he, says, he goes, how are you feeling right now? you're feeling like stupid and weak and you don't know how to do anything. He says, never forget that feeling. So like when you get your black belt, everything's like, remember what it felt like to not know anything. So that's called, and he, goes, he said, we call that fresh mind and I try to approach writing that way, is I don't like, I don't, there, there are people who will tell you like, this is the only way to tell a story, or this is what you must do, or this is the formula. It's like, I don't really believe in the formulas. I think that, that material speaks to you if you listen hard enough, and that one of the best things that you can do is approach each piece of material like you don't know anything. So like, and because of it, you get fossilized in your creative process when you think there's only one way to tell a story or that there's a right way of doing things, and a wrong way of doing things. There's lots of ways of doing things. Um, and, and when you, when you stay flexible in your process, when you can, when you can see how other people do things and adapt to their processes, you inevitably learn from them. Um, and I, I try to do that all the time. It's like, I, 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 maybe it's just my personality, but, I'm, I'm good at working at, at working my process into other people's processes because not everybody not everybody does that <laughs> and, and when you get um, when you run shows you inevitably have to work with other people so what I find it does for me is that it allows me to figure out a way to get the best out of the people that I have around me and that's for everybody that's good for the show and at the end of the day Mm -hmm. what you're going to make is going to be better Uh,
0: that's great advice Uh, and just just a wonderful quote just you know when you stay flexible in the process I just I, I like that I like that just idea Um, and that philosophy more than maybe anything else we've talked to thus far. So I'm glad. Uh, (laughs) You know, I I always find when when you get to the end of the conversation, you get some of the best nuggets. And I don't know, maybe it's because it always takes 20 to 30 minutes just to warm up. But uh, (laughs) Naren, thank you so much. Are you on like Twitter or any of those other places where people... Uh, like to connect? Uh, do, you, do you do any of that stuff or, or no?
1: I, I, I do it very infrequently. I'm, I'm sort of like a, I'm sort of a reckless and only because it's, it's not like I think those services are, are, are lame or dumb or anything. It's that I found over the years that I just need quiet time where I'm not distracted by things. And so I, I tend to stay away from them because it's too much, um, it's too much interaction, and my my brain needs to have some some sort of like quiet time where nobody is talking to me to just to, just to work efficiently.
0: <laughs> you, you know what's so funny that you say that because first of all, I think I think it was Glenn Gould who said, "I don't know how much time it is, but I know that every everybody needs a certain amount of time to themselves." Uh, yeah. And the other thing that I just I would love to do, and I'm trying to figure out whether or not this is even possible, but I would love to literally turn off email for a year because. I, I I mean, yes, like, from the perspective of it, you need to share information. Well, you could use, like, other sources. But the idea of just email being so invasive in our lives right now, yeah. it's like if something's important, then someone can either call me or find another way to get in touch with me, you know. But if it has to be email, it's just, it's, just, it's this—it's t- the greatest time suck of, of our lives right now.
1: I agree with you, and, and I can really... I reduced it, actually, um, and made a conscious effort, too, because I like talking to people on the phone. And for some things, email is great, but a lot of times it's a really shitty, low-bandwidth kind of communication. You get so much more out of talking to somebody on the phone or sitting with somebody in the room. And it's just like, so I'm I'm not a fan.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'd i love to do it as a one-year experiment and see what happens in life. Anyways, Naren, cool. thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Well, there you have it, Naren Shankar, episode number 64 of Business of Film. And uh, I I really, really enjoyed that conversation. I, I, be, I was thinking about it for several hours after I got off the call with him. I'm obviously thinking about it now. And just some of the things that he said, they really, really resonated because you can... You can sometimes get lost in the weeds and more specifically, you can get caught up in listicles and things that are, you know, your checklist of things that you have to do, the five things for that, the seven things for this, the, you know, all the traditional things that are just so endemic of what we see minute to minute in online and bombard our lives with. So it was almost refreshing when I kind of was able to sit back and just think about the conversation that we just had with Naren, uh, just the way he thinks about film, or the way he thinks about TV, uh, and it was really cool. So uh, I, I, I urge you to take some time, think about those things that Naren chatted with us here about, hopefully there's some stuff in there that you'll be able to apply to uh, the way you run your shows whether it be for film or tv and uh, we'll be back next week with more uh business of film uh thank you for listening please if you're listening to this on your um, i guess podcatcher device of your choice push that subscribe button so you get us uh weekly delivered to you and uh do share us with uh, your friends colleagues online if you so desire and we very much appreciate that And if you are listening to this on iTunes and you happen to be there, please drop us a review. It really helps, certainly, to spread the word of the show, but also to help other people find uh, us and to hear your comments uh, is always wonderfully appreciated. So thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week.